everybody's lucky. You just don't know when your luck's going to hit. So do everything you can to still be in the game when it happens. Welcome to Queries, Qualms, and Quirks, the weekly podcast that asks published authors to share their successful query letter and discuss their journey from first spark to day of publication. I am your host, author Sarah Nicholas, and literary agent Sarah Enfis. Today, we have fantasy author R.R. Verdi. R.R. Verdi is a USA Today bestseller, two-time Dragon Award finalist, and Nebula Award finalist. He is the author of urban fantasy series The Grave Report and the new South Asian epic fantasy series from Tor Books, Tales of Tremaine. So please welcome R.R. to the show. Hello. Hey, thanks for having me. Hi, I'm so excited to have you on here because your journey is not quite traditional, so I'm really excited to get into it. We're going to start by going kind of all the way back to the beginning, though. When did you first start getting interested in writing? And then how long did it take from them before you started getting serious about publication? So writing, getting serious was summer after graduating high school. So it was 2008 before going to college. And I already knew I wasn't 100% sure what I wanted to do uh, collegially because my interests were acting, which I've always had a passion for, and writing. Uh, which is the new passion that came in at that time. And I was like, okay, well, getting a degree in either of those things does not guarantee a career. I already knew that. Like, you go get an MFA, the only thing that's guaranteed is you can go teach creative writing. He doesn't promise a job <laughs> in the industry. Like, you're not going to become a writer. But I already started and I fell in love with it. So I was kind of muddling through college, figuring out my way. But I, the second I started writing my first book, which I still have, like, a draft of it, it's god-awful. Like, it's torture-level <laughs> bad. Everything made sense in my life. Like, I just felt ridiculously happy uh, the act of writing more than even like finishing a book was just just really pleasant and fun and it felt like this is right this is what I should be doing yeah let me ask you a question because you said the first book is awful and you're saying that with uh retrospect right um yeah. in retrospect did you at the time think it was great when you finished it I didn't really know enough about prose and craft mm. I guess to judge it but I knew I loved doing I was so excited by the story like I like the story I mean to this day it's still a solid story it just needs to be completely scrapped and redone like the themes and the the characters they all they all need rework but it was good it's just I didn't have the skill to execute it then and it, you know it's exactly what an 18 year old guy would come up with it wasn't like <laughs> a great original story it was you know there was a lot of wish fulfillment in it self-projection mm. but you know you're an 18 year old kid and you just you find the love of writing you, you what are you going to write? It's usually some kind of wish fulfillment story for a lot of younger people. And that's what it was, yeah. but it, it was fun. So how did you learn more about the publishing industry? Like how it works? And then you ultimately made the decision to self-publish. So how did you come to that decision? I actually didn't know about the industry that much. I just knew I really wanted to. And around this time, I've been writing a bunch of crappy novels. And then I got pretty close to publication level ready with the first book, Grave Beginnings, that I ever published. And this was on the tail end of the the Kindle explosion that just happened, uh, 2012. And then it was circulating just on the internet, you know, like Amanda Hawking, I believe is her name, sold like X amount of zillions of copies on Smashwords. And then Hugh Howey had just happened on Kindle. And I was like, oh, Amazon lets you self-publish books now. This is the thing. I didn't even think about querying. I was like, I just want to get my story out there and do things. So I, I got my mom, who's an old school traditional uh, graphic designer, like by hand, and she'd been learning Photoshop to help me mock up the original cover, which no longer exists. And we just threw the book out there December 2013 in ebook format only. And within a few weeks, it was already selling copies and reviews were coming in. And I was like, wow, like this is working. People were reading my stuff and people are chiming in. And, you know, I wasn't making much money, but I, I didn't care. It was like, it felt right. 
And then what happened in between then and signing that contract with Tor for the first binding? Oh, a lot. Uh, <laughs> God, seven years passed. After writing Grave Beginnings, oof. The, the original cover was not great. Sorry, Mom. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> but I started getting readers who read it and were loving it and were critiquing it like, hey, it needs some better editing. It needs a better cover. I was like, okay. And I started putting a call out and I started networking and just talking to writers online, all self-published. I didn't know anyone traditional at this point. And things just started falling together weirdly. Like I met my cover artist who'd read the book already and she loved it. She's like, hey, I think it can make you a better cover. And we did. And then sales started going up. And then I met my editor who's still my indie editor to this day who I love and adore, Michelle Dunbar. And she like completely like helped me redo the book, developmental editing line, got me in touch with copy and proofing. And the book started doing better. And I took the skills I learned from her with editing to write the second book, Grave Measures, over a few years. When that book debuted, a few months later, the the Dragon Awards happened. Mm -hmm. And it was up for that, alongside Jim Butcher and N.K. Jemisin in the same category. And the exposure from that like exploded the the series sales and attention on it for a while. Mm. And then I wrote Dangerous Ways as an experiment to mess around with urban fantasy and see what I could do with the genre. And then that one placed for the Dragon Award. And I think about a year later, I met my, who'd become like one of my greatest friends now, Yutanjaya Wijaratne, who's a Sri Lankan author. And we were talking about our nitpicks with metal, um, Pacific Rim. And our response was something called the Metal Karma story, which the first story is the messenger. The idea of like how whenever aliens attack Earth, they always attack America. But <laughs> aliens would not know enough to know America's a superpower. They mostly go by like, well, the world's population is centered in China and India. If you're going to attack, you'd attack the largest concentration of people first to wipe them out. So we did a South Asian kind of mecha story. And then that placed for the nebulas, which both he and I were like shocked. And we were we flew out to try to go and meet people. Mm-hmm. And that's where I met my agent or who would become my agent later that year, uh, Joshua Bilmish. Uh, we had met and talked over there, but he didn't sign off on my project. I think it just sat in his query folder for a long time. The year went on and I ended up meeting, uh, who'd become my editor at Tor, Christopher Morgan. I didn't know that's who he was at first. Uh, I was meeting with somebody else and we were kicking it off at lunch and introduced me to Chris and we were just talking and nerding out. And at the end of it, he was like, yeah, send me uh, the pitch for this novel you've got. And I was like, okay. And I did. And a month later, he calls back saying, do you have time for a call in December? I was like, Sure. So we make that happen. He goes, Tor wants to buy the series from you. And all I had was a sample at this point. So I was like, wow, uh, I need to go get an agent. He's like, yeah, go pick one. And I just called back up Joshua. I was like, hey, it's been a while. I haven't heard anything back. I need to know if you're going to represent me or not. And he, you know, he finally got to my story in the query, his whatever his order was. And he's like, yeah, I like this. Let's do it. So I signed representation with him like just before Christmas. I think it was like December 19th, 2019. Mm. And then by spring 2020, we had the tour contract in the mail and then months later we had the Golang's uh, uk contract so it was nuts it was a seven-year grind for this to work out i guess yeah this is the point in the podcast where we usually read the query letter but you didn't really <laughs> get anything I, with I'm the query letter queried. yeah so, i've never queried <laughs> so we're gonna skip that part so how has your experience been since signing your contract especially let us know if there was anything surprising along the way and also because you spent a long time self-publishing you know what were kind of the contrast of your experiences between self-publishing and traditional publishing i've been fortunate enough not just to watch a lot of youtube because you know other authors who've been traditional for a long time have talked about the process and what they've gone through and how they've seen the industry change what to expect and not expect from a publisher so i knew a lot of that going in it was still kind of surprising though because you know every everyone has a story so they get told certain things and certain things 
don't pan out or that's not the treatment you actually get mm-hmm. marketing stuff and being indie first it, it's really hard to let go of all that control because at least you know you know it's the whole if you want something done right you can do it yourself mm-hmm. because I, I think the year when i signed the deal 2020 i was looking at a lot of the covers coming out of the industry and i wasn't really happy with a lot of the styles i was seeing and i knew what i wanted for my book and i'd already contracted an indie artist originally because that's what i thought the future of the series would be to do some mock-ups with me and we had beautiful concept arts done in storyboard and i had shared them and people loved them and i sent this work to tour just going like I, maybe they'll consider it and just look at it and like get some good ideas because I, I had a really strong idea of the themes i wanted with this novel mm. And I do believe a good cover does sell a book. I know people like don't judge a book by its cover, but like ever since Amazon everyone happened, does. I'm sorry. Like, yeah, everyone does. We are a visual shopper. It's why they spend so much money on movie posters and people collect them still to this day. Like there is an actual culture around it. Like people buy art and books are art these days. Brandon Sanderson is the greatest example of that. He turns his books into physical art on the outside and inside and people will pay a fortune for it. So when I sent them the artwork, I was actually really surprised that they responded to it. They allowed us to get the same artist who'd done it. They took bits and pieces, kind of like of a collage of all the concept art I had and made a new cover out of it the way they wanted, which worked perfectly for me. And I'm hoping that goes with book two. But I, the lack of transparency in data and information has is, is the, been the hardest for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know where the book's always at marketing-wise, what's going on. I have my ideas of what I want to do, and there's kind of like a, a wall in the way at times of like, oh, well, we can't do that, or it's not done this way. And I'm like, I have data that this really works. Or I have a reason why I want to do this and I'm willing to take the hit on this. So I guess it's just been that adjustment because it feels like, you know, two ends of different extremes. Indie, you have all the control. Traditional, you have like very little at all. <laughs> and maybe they're yeah. humoring you. And it's really hard to find like a middle ground between any of them, to be honest. Yeah, I, I remember in one of my author groups, someone recently coming in posting who someone who's been a self-published author for a long time and is on her first traditional contract. And is like, is it just normal to not know how many books you're selling? <laughs> and everyone's like, yes, it is. Yeah. Oh, that too. That's infuriating. Like <laughs> yeah. I recently got what seems like good news and good projections. So I'm happy, but it's taken a long while. And I'm like, I would have known this like instantaneously anytime I mm-hmm. wanted indie. And I'm like, this is just, uh, <laughs> <laughs> your brain needs support and new Ollie brainy chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All right. It is time for the quick round. I call it author DNA. It's just categories we like to put people in. Are you a pantser or a plotter? Pantser. Do you tend to be an overwriter or an underwriter? Overwriter. Do you prefer to write in the morning or at night? Whenever. I write all through the day. When starting a new project, do you typically start with a character or plot or concept or something else first? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It changes per book. Do you prefer coffee or tea? Neither. I take caffeine pills. Oh, okay. When writing, do you prefer silence or sound? Both. Depends on the project. Okay. When it comes to the first draft, are you a get it down kind of person or a get it right kind of person? Both. <laughs> what tools and software do you use to draft? Oh, God. Microsoft Word 2000. 
<laughs> That's a very common answer. I mean, not the 2000 really? part. Oh, yeah, well, but Microsoft yes, Word, I use, yes. <laughs> I use the old one with no distractions, no nothing. It's just a white screen of doom. Do you prefer drafting or revising more? <sighs> drafting. <laughs> do you write in sequential order? Or do you hop around? Uh, sequential order. And final quick round question. Are you an extrovert or an introvert? Extrovert. All right. Like the so one author gonna... who might be. <laughs> there are a few of us. Not many, though. It's time for the second cue of the podcast. What were some of the qualms or worries that you had on your publishing journey? And, you know, were they realized or did you overcome them or how did they shake out? I, I guess it's everyone's heard the whole like how much control you lose with editing stuff. And I didn't know how much I'd have to like change or rewrite in the original story or have cut. And having done this for so long at this point, like starting in 20, 2008, and then my first published novel going through its edits like 2021, I didn't have to cut much. Like I, I've gotten to the point where if I estimate a story will be, let's say, 350,000 words. I'm usually within a few thousand words perfectly accurate of where the story will be after edits. And even my traditional experience was with that. We cut X amount of thousands of words and then Tor wanted me to add in a few more scenes to the book, which I did. And it bumped exactly back up to what I estimated the final book would be. So I was really happy about that. But I guess for me, it's been timeline. That's what I am having the hardest point and I've always worried about because I've always heard that publishing can be really slow, that delays pop up, that communication things can pop up. And it sets off this cycle of this delay leads to this delay, which just delays this, which means you get X part of your book or process back later, which then delays you, which means you can only get it done by X amount of time. And they're juggling so many of the books. If it gets to them by X time, they might be wrapped up in this project. And it just, it's like this whole thing of bureaucracy and like this holds roller coaster of timelines that just get muddled. And I, I'm not used to that working with freelancers. It's very much been like, if I get you the book by this date, Barring something horrible happened, they usually get it back by X date and you just can move on like a very clean assembly line. And then the God forbid, if anything happens, you at least can adjust and not screw up timelines anywhere else. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned word count because the first binding is kind of a, a hefty book. How many words that, that end up being? 351,000 words. <laughs> and book wow. two's draft is bigger. Book two's oh draft is goodness. 450. I'd like to provide a content warning for suicide and suicidal ideation. If you would like to skip that, please fast forward three full minutes. All right. Did you have any kind of low parts in your journey? And if you did, you know, what kept you going? Uh, yeah. Uh, 2008, a part of me found writing out of a, uh, I guess like a rebound from uh, attempting suicide. Uh, I, I struggled with depression and suicidal ideation, mostly through certain life circumstances before I reached that age, trauma and stuff. And writing and acting were kind of things that saved me from mm -hmm. that. And I suppose that my struggles with writing, because I didn't know what I wanted to do and how to get there. I had a, a really bad relapse in 2011. It was around when Jim Butcher's Ghost Story, uh, the novel, just came out for the Dresden Files. And had already read it. I think we were like maybe a month out of its release or maybe two. I don't remember exactly when. It was early enough that he was on tour promoting it still. Mm -hmm. So it must have been very fresh. And I remember seeing a sign because I'd asked for a sign from life. And I, I literally quite literally saw a sign uh, stuck in the Barnes mm -hmm. & Noble that I still visit and go to uh, that Jim Butcher would be there signing for the book. And my idea was, okay, I will go meet him, get the book signed. And then that, that night, end my life. And I will end on a good note. Mm. and we went to the signing uh, my sisters were there at the mall too and they went around doing their thing and it finally got done and he was signing books at this point 
And he was doing the very, you know, thing where every author's like, hey, how you doing? Moving the line along, being very nice, mm-hmm. asking everyone the thing. How was the signing for them? What's up? And when he asked me how I was doing, I don't know why, but I told him everything, uh, mm-hmm. what I was struggling with. And he stopped and gave me this whole speech of how only I could write my story. And if I did and stuck to it, I had more of a shot of controlling it and deciding what happens. And if I didn't, because if I let go of my story that night, I would be deciding it right there. I would be ending my story. Like no one mm-hmm. could say what could happen. I couldn't definitively say that I'll never make it. I, I chose not to make it that night. But if I stuck to it, he told me that one day I might be up for awards next to him. I could be in anthologies with him. I might panel with him. I might have my name on a bestseller. Like all the things you would think to do, sign a traditional deal, whatever. And I, I weirdly stuck to that. And oddly enough, most of those things, if not all, have happened or are in the process of happening. Some I can't talk about. But the first Dragon Awards, I was nominated alongside him in the same category. Years later, I was in an indie anthology with him, Parallel Worlds. And then this year, I was featured in his urban fantasy anthology that he edits with Kerry Hughes, Heroic Hearts. Uh, so my urban fantasy story got to debut alongside uh, Dresden Stories. Uh, I've been up for the other stuff you said, like Nebulas and stuff, uh, the bestseller list, uh, like he said. 2019, because I remember this specifically, was my first panel with him. It was recorded mm. at Dragon Con, and I got to have that happen. Yeah, every single thing he's said has been what's kept me going, and they've become little weird goals. It might sound really vain, but they've been like, maybe I can make this happen, like the way he said it can. And like I said, uh, they've, they've been happening. Well, I knew that you and him had you know a lot of kind of interaction back and forth, but I didn't know the history behind it. Uh, changing gears a little bit, do you feel like you made any kind of publishing mistakes along the way that you might want to let listeners know about so they don't make the same ones? Indie, I would say, yeah, it's definitely worth getting your covers and your your editing done perfectly up front, Mm -hmm. but it's not going to kill you. I understand everyone has different circumstances and money and stuff like that, and it didn't kill my books. It didn't, it maybe got a few early bad reviews for that stuff, but you know what? Some people are going to look for reasons to, to knock you down anyways. Don't listen to them because I have editions of like extremely famous authors and their works and there are mistakes in there. And I've counted more some in traditional books and indie books, which is not to disparage any. Just do the best you can with where you're at at the point and go back to fix what you can when you can. For traditional, yeah. I'd say never be afraid to ask as many questions as you need to 100% understand anything contractually mm-hmm. with your agent. Even if you think it might be good, even if your agent tells you it might be good, it might not be good for your circumstances. Ask and ask and ask until you have the answers you're satisfied with or a solution to something you're uh, satisfied with. Because uh, we've all been on Twitter and stuff and seen a lot of things are changing in the industry with how payments work or how payments are broken up and their time or percentages. And things with, like I was talking about with delays, where if those go on, that's your money getting delayed. And that can really hurt people depending on where they are financially and stuff in their life. So don't be afraid to rock boats and ask questions because that's why all the contract language exists. It's supposed to go two ways. And if it doesn't, do whatever you can to ask the right things to make it go somewhat in your favor. Mm-hmm. All right. Kind of related question. Can you share with listeners one of the most important lessons that you learned on your journey to publication? It's going to sound really uh, cliche, but don't give up because... Looking back, I can tell you how it all worked out and added it up. But looking forward, I never knew. And the only thing I can guarantee is it's because I didn't quit. And I had so many opportunities and voices in my head telling me to. And it really was just the next dumb moment led to another. And I guess it's the idea of everybody's lucky. You just don't know when your luck's going to hit. So do everything you can to still be in the game when it happens. Because like I said, you don't know. For me, it was I was at the Nebulas and I met my agent, but he didn't take a chance on me then. 
and I had and I still stuck it out that year and by chance met an editor and I got the contract or the interest from a publisher before even having my agent and we had to go backwards to get my agent, which is not how it works. But I don't know if there's a real way how it works because again, like it's different for everybody. And that's kind mm-hmm. of the point. Like you don't know how it's going to work for you. So just keep showing up because it might work out differently from you than it has for everybody else. But you've got to be there for that to happen. Yeah. If everyone had the same journey, this podcast wouldn't exist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. This is not a business that most of us succeed in completely on our own. Who are some of the people who helped you along the way and how? Sarah Anderson, who would be my first cover artist, my indie artist that I use. And as well as Michelle Dunbar, who I already mentioned, uh, the indie editor. Later along the way, it'd be many years later, but Jim Butcher, obviously, not just for when he first showed up in my life in 2011, uh, 2018, before Dragon Con, I think this was around spring, he added me on Facebook and was super kind and started offering me like business mentorship and friendship and personal life advice. There was like this huge gap when I met him at the first signing where he saved my life to many years ago later where he started actually showing up in my life. Like before then, mm-hmm. there wasn't really a time of like we built friendship or anything. It's he showed up much later again and just started talking and telling me about traditional and the business and I guess writing fortitude, inspiration. I could talk to him about my personal life, like just a real friend. And that's helped me a lot, especially with the transition, understanding some of the things that where the industry is at now, where it used to be, what to expect and how to go about it. And and honestly, more than anything, again, like the fortitude. Nice. All right. So you have two releases, I think, coming out this year. Do you want to tell us about them? Yeah. I have the instinct animal anthology that's being edited by LJ Hackmeister and money from that's going to be going to uh, animal rescue and charities. It's all dedicated to that. I think every author is putting in some kind of animal adjacent or animal featuring story. Uh, I know I will be. Mine's going to be from the point of view of the cat that Ari gets in the first binding. Mm -hmm. Uh, We called in like, I think every favor we could to get as many different writers as we can. And I think it's going to be featuring like Jim Butcher, Shauna McGuire, Patricia Briggs, Faith Hunter, Kelly Mm -hmm. Armstrong, like just everybody we could possibly get. Yeah, good list. And then I found out recently that book two, Tales of Tremaine, is technically up and announced. I'm not going to spoil the title because I was kind of waiting for a cover to spoil it, but I will say it's October 3rd because it is officially listed publicly now. So there is that. (laughs) Yeah. Do you want to tell us about that series, what that's about? So Tales of Tremaine is sort of my love letter to the history of storytelling and stories themselves, both ones that I grew up with, as well as Stories from our world, from mythology and the great epics from the original Proto-Indo-European myths, all the way up to more modern ones. It tackles everything from the beats and tropes and famous archetypes that have been used, uh, both in my favorite series as well as in the history of storytelling. A lot of those ended up being codified in Joseph Campbell's Heroes Myth, but that's also a reduction. There's so many other beats and tropes mm-hmm. that get left out of that. And I'm sort of doing a love letter in response to all of that. So... It's a story about stories that's also using techniques from the history of stories as well as beats and tropes from them. Like it's it was kind of my ultimate love letter and meta analysis of storytelling. And it's set through a South Asian framework. Part of it is a frame narrative because the original brand myth of South Asia, besides the uh, the Rig Veda, is Mahabharat, which is done in a frame narrative and it's an epic poem. So I wanted that lyricism and that structure to this, and it made sense for the character to be a storyteller. So you're really following the world's greatest villain or hero, depending on where you've heard his story from and how it's been twisted. Because that's another theme that stories never hold their shape. They get retwisted and taken and people are quick to judge you based on what they hear, but they never hear the whole truth. And it's all about that, the malleability of stories, how they evolve and the people caught between them and how you never know 
a true story until you hear it from the person who lived it. So be really careful who and what you judge them for. And even then still, you know, reserve some judgment because you don't know what's made a person make those choices. All right. Awesome. So the anthology comes out next week when this podcast airs. And then the second book in your series comes out in October. So that's plenty of time for people to read the first book if they haven't yet. Yep. Thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your story with everyone. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. You can find the full text of the transcript in the show notes, along with links to find out more about R.R. Verdi and his books. If you enjoyed the show, I'd appreciate if you'd help me find new listeners by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, telling your friends, or sharing this episode on social media. If you're interested in supporting the show, go to patreon.com slash Sarah Nicholas. That's Sarah with an H and Nicholas with no H. And if you're a published author interested in being a guest on the show, please click on the home base link in the description or go to sarahnicholas.com and click on the podcast logo in the sidebar. That is Sarah with an H and Nicholas with no H again. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.